Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Dr. Dale Peterson will join us to discuss the ghosts of Gombe. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, joining us today is Dr. Dale Peterson. He is the author of The Ghosts of Gombe, A True Story of Love and Death in an African Wilderness. Dr. Peterson is a noted author. He's written books about anthropology, art, computers, conversion, uh, conservation, pretty much everything. And he's also Jane Goodall's official biographer. And the biography of Jane Goodall, The Woman Who Redefined Man, is among one of the many of his well-known 20 books. Again, his new book is entitled The Ghosts of Gombe, A True Story of Love and Death in an African Wilderness. And I'm very pleased to have you today on The Grok Science Show. Uh, certainly our pleasure. It's a fascinating story you, you recount here in The Ghosts of Gombe. I, I'm curious so why you decided to write about this. Well, Gombe, of course, is the name of the uh, the place where Jane Goodall has a research site, uh, which she uh, started in 1960. Just, you know, herself and her mom going into the forest with a using a tent and uh, bringing along an African cook. So it was the three of them there in the forest. And... Um, the Ghost of Gombe, the book that I've written, comes out of the biography that I wrote, and it comes out of, moreover, my friendship with Jane Goodall over the last, um, you know, 40 years, 30 years, and my friendship with a, a colleague of Jane's named Geza Teleki. Geza was um, the... Uh, I knew um, years ago that Geza had been a student of Jane's, in the late 1960s, and uh, was also um, Jane casually mentioned to me years ago that uh, there, there was a tragic event. His girlfriend died at Gombe. Uh, I didn't know anything else about it. Geza never talked about it to me until one day in 2008 when I received a phone call. Geza, um, really in very bad shape, um, just said, Dale, I need to talk. And he had, for many years, you know, since Ruth died in 1959, he had suppressed all memory of what happened. And then in 2008, he began to remember. And uh, so he needed to talk. And uh, that conversation began and lasted for about three years off and on. I'd go down to visit him in his home and Washington, D.C., and uh, spend days with him, uh, tape-recorded conversations, and that's the core of the book that tells the story of of Ruth and uh, this young woman who died at Gombe and the ghosts of uh, that death. So the individual, Ruth Davis, she was a volunteer in Jane Goodall's camp, sort of set the story, who, who was she, and how did she get there, and uh, what was her role in the research? Well, she was a volunteer researcher. She had been Geza Teleki's um, lover 
Geza had been a student researcher at that time. He was a graduate student in anthropology who came down. And uh, when he learned that Jane needed a typist uh, badly, uh, he volunteered his, his girlfriend, Ruth, and she, so she came out from the States. And she stayed there for a year and eventually, actually very quickly, uh, graduated from being a typist to being a, a researcher herself, a chimp researcher. And she's led the effort to sort of follow the chimpanzees beyond the camps. That's right. And so that was a, a major change in protocol that happened while Ruth and Geza were there. And the, the story of how that protocol happened, uh, how that change in protocol happened, is is kind of a complicated one. But they, Jane had set it up so that uh, whenever she was not there and she was increasingly trying to become the... Uh, director of the site and not an active researcher herself, but managing the research while managing research elsewhere. Uh, she set up a system where they would provision the uh, chimpanzees. They would bring out bananas and the wild chimpanzees would come into camp at the where the bananas were being left out, the provisioning site. Uh, and that worked well for quite a while. It brought in the chimps, they would eat the bananas, they would behave normally. They were used to people, so they didn't act as if the people mattered one way or the other. And so you got a, a pretty good uh, representation of normal chimpanzee behavior, and they were able to develop some sense of the nature of chimpanzee society. And certainly they understood the individuals, and they could keep track of individuals, which would be very hard otherwise. Uh, and that worked fine until... Uh, the, the uh, spring of uh, 1968, when uh, a, a group of uh, baboons, a troop of baboons, about 50 baboons, discovered the, uh, the the research site and realized there were bananas. So the baboons began coming in, and then there was this competition between the chimpanzees and the baboons. That created a very difficult and complicated and stressful situation, and as a result. Uh, Geza and Ruth Davis and a third person named Carol Gale uh, began to lobby for a change in protocol. Jane wasn't there at the time that they decided that they needed to change it, but she soon, she, soon showed up uh, at the start of that summer, uh, and they had a couple of conferences about what to do. And the decision was, that they would reduce the banana provisioning by a substantial amount. Instead of leaving bananas out every day, they'd leave them out every once every five days, once every six days. And the rest of the time they started following, the, the researchers would follow the chimpanzees into the forest. That had that change in protocol had a transformative effect on uh, the people's attitude about the chimps, and I think it had a transformative effect on the, the research itself. What was our, their perspective of, of the chimps before following them and then after they began to follow them into the wild? Well, I think before they changed the protocol, they, the, the researchers, uh, the first thing you did if you were a chimpanzee researcher at camp, you, you would learn the names of the individuals because they were, they're very much individuals just in the sense that people are individual personalities, individual characters, individual place in the social system and so on. 
Uh, so they would learn the names of individuals and they would recognize the behaviors and they would keep records of the kinds of behaviors that were going on, records of the social relationships, records of the physical health. But there was always this sense that there was something unnatural about the situation, and there was. You know, the chimps would come into camp. So they were only seeing chimpanzees on this uh, provisioning station, on this place where the chimps would come in and the people would watch. And even though I think they were getting pretty good representation of normal behavior, it wasn't a full representation of the life of the chimps. Once they started following the chimps into the forest, suddenly the people, they would follow them individually. One person would follow a single chimp and usually wind up following a chimp that was in a group of chimps. Once they began that, they really began to enter the chimpanzee's physical world, and the result of that was an increasing sense of their social world and eventually a, a real sense of the chimpanzees as psychological beings. Uh, a real sense that these were essentially like people. Uh, and that was really transformative. Eventually, as people would say to me and people who remembered those days, uh, their friendships actually formed between individual researchers and individual chimpanzees. You might want to ask what you know, how it's possible to have a friend, friendship with a wild animal when you're a scientist and you're studying that wild animal. But one of the things that happened was the chimpanzees actually selected the people that they would let follow them. In order to understand how that was possible, that chimps could make that selection, you have to realize that Gombe is an extremely rugged environment. The, the topography is very, very rugged, very steep, uh, it's actually a cliffside of a huge escarpment. Uh, and uh, along with that, of course, it's a tropical forest, so there's all lots of vegetative obstacles as well as ravines and so on. So it's really, in that environment, it's very close to impossible for a human being to follow a wild chimpanzee without the chimpanzee agreeing to being followed. Because if they don't want to be followed, they can just disappear. They can climb up a tree in five seconds. They can, you know, cross a ravine in, in a half a minute by jumping from tree to tree or swinging on a vine. People can't do that. So what happened was chimps would allow, allow some people to follow them and not others. So they were selecting. And the result of that selection was these increasing um, friendships, emotional relationships in which the chimpanzee liked the person who was following him and the person um, liked the chimpanzee. And so genuine friendships, and that's odd. Uh, you may think it seems non-scientific, and it might seem that way, but the, the fact is that chimpanzees are emotionally very much like humans, so it's not really surprising that you had friendships develop. And what is surprising is just the intensity of it and the quality of it. What about the, the camp itself? How, what, what was the dynamic of the camp like? What were the, the friendships, the, the controversies, the conflicts that arose there? Right. Well, you know, when 
Jaza began talking to me about the death of Ruth, uh, I began to realize that people were not fully certain how she died. Uh, she disappeared one day on July 12th. Gaza was actually in the States at that time, uh, called back to, uh, to register for his physical for possible induction into the army. Uh, so, um, the, the official, uh, presumption was that it was an accident, but, uh, when Gaza started talking to me, um, years later, 40 years later, um, the, the, uh, he began to realize that there was gossip about this and that some people said she had committed suicide. Uh, other people said she had been pushed. And it is the fact that there are three ways to fall off a cliff. You can jump, you can be pushed, or you can fall accidentally. So I wrote the book in large part to explore the rumors and to to satisfy at least myself and um, also Geza uh, about what happened. And I did that by just essentially creating a, a large portrait of the research site itself and all of the people in it and a consideration of what people were doing and how they were getting along. And I did find that there was a, a lot of tension, a lot of social tension and cultural tension, uh, and that was a significant part. Uh, it was an extremely, at the time, much more so than it would be today, it was extremely isolated. You know, they didn't have the sorts of communications we have today. Uh, they might have radio telephone and they could in an emergency call Nairobi, but, uh, they certainly couldn't call home. And, uh, so it was very isolated and it was, uh, you know, kind of a high pressure, pressure situation. It would be like, uh, you know, a flight to Mars in a spaceship and you've got, say, seven people and who don't necessarily know each other intimately but yet they're forced to live in this situation of intense isolation and intimacy simultaneously and I think there is um, a lot of just social tension and that's one of the things that I discovered about the situation. I also you know looked at not only the you know the researchers who were there but I explored um the place in a cultural sense. The, you know, the researchers came from different cultural backgrounds. Some were European, and a couple were educated at a very elite European university, Cambridge University. Uh, there were Americans. Uh, there were American hippies who were smoking marijuana. There were American scientists who hated marijuana smoking because they thought it was inappropriate. Uh, so there were all of these things going on. There was a marital breakup during this period. There were affairs and sexual tensions. Uh, and all of that I brought out in, in writing this book and trying to figure out, you know, the, answer the basic questions of what happened to Ruth. Do you feel like you have a, a good feeling about what happened to Ruth? And are you satisfied with the story you, you got out of all your investigation? Yes, I am. I, I am satisfied. Yeah, I mean, I think it was a mystery, and uh, there were some really strange happenings and interesting complexities that that make it a mystery. And so, yes, I think I'm, I've got the answer to it. And uh, I, you know, you 
you read the book to the very end, and uh, there it is, I think. But uh, it, it it is a mystery, but for me, uh, there was a much bigger picture that I wanted to paint, and I just wanted to create this portrait of life at a remote you know, remote research station in the middle of Africa, Jane Goodall's research station. And that was part of my motivation. And I think that's part of, for me, part of the fascination of the book is not merely the problem of someone who died and how she died, but also just the the social situation and uh, the fact that this was a famous research camp. And uh, along with that, I just got really fascinated by the relationships with the chimpanzees and uh, also just trying to create a sense of what it was like and part of what it was like and this ties back to Ruth's death there were there were lots of dangers that uh, people may not have appreciated there were lots of poisonous snakes uh, spitting cobras uh, black mambas uh, python, 16 feet long. Uh, there were some dangerous uh, mammals, and uh, uh, including the chimps themselves, who uh, were, you know, after all, wild animals. Have other people that are involved in the story uh, voiced their opinions on the book, and what, what did they think? Well, Jane has read it, and she thinks it's uh, fine, and she thinks it's accurate, and she's written a very nice blurb for the book. You know, I had to have her read it because she's in it. And uh, Geza didn't live to see the end of the book, and that was part of the, the tension of writing it, was Geza was dying in the process of as I wrote it. That's part of the reason he thought he couldn't write the book himself. So there was a sense that, uh, you know, he was grieving about his girlfriend and trying to sort everything out, and uh, at the same time his body was falling apart. So that was... Uh, me part of the part of the drama of doing the book well i'm curious to close uh, if, if people want to learn more about the book uh, more about your work uh, where can they go well my website dalepetersonauthor.com is uh, a good start uh, you can look it up on amazon the ghosts of gandhi uh so or your local bookstore uh, well, I certainly hope you will go take a look. Uh, we were just speaking with uh, Dale Peterson. He's the author of the new book, The Ghosts of Gombe, A True Story of Love and Death in an African Wilderness. And Dr. Peterson, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Well, thank you, Charles. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.